Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit, the horror movie review podcast for horror fans and fanatics alike. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, delivering horror movie reviews and discussions of both classic and current films for your twisted pleasure. Please be aware that episodes may include spoilers, and as always, I hope you enjoy. For this week's episode of Daily Horror Habit, my guests and I are chatting about Prano Bailey Bond's 2021 descent into societal hysteria and psychological trauma with her debut film, Censor. Set against the backdrop of 1980s video nasty hysteria in the UK, film censorist Enid, played by Neve Algar, comes across a new horror film that seems to be linked to her sister's mysterious childhood disappearance. And joining me to sift through the video nasty inspired horrors of Censor is Jake Decker of the Nuclear Fridge podcast and formerly of GameSpot.com's After Dark podcast. So without further ado, Jake, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about this movie. I really enjoyed it. No problem. Yeah, I've, uh, I've been a fan of your work for a while, and this is a film that also resonated with me, and uh, I'm really looking forward to getting to uh, why this is one of your favorite horror films of the year. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, as I said before, I haven't seen a whole lot of horror films this year. Uh, I try to see the big ones, but I feel like I miss quite a few. But I made a point to see this one because the concept and the idea just seems so unique and interesting. Uh, and also, I'm a big sucker for cinematography and the blue reddish hues of this film. So I saw that trailer and I was like, yeah, this is a movie that I'll probably dig. Well, as somebody that's seen quite a few horror movies this year, I'll definitely uh, I'll definitely say that Censor is one that stands out for a lot of the reasons that you just mentioned. But uh, before we kind of dive into what makes Censor a pretty remarkable film in a year that uh, has been stuffed with nothing but uh, quality and standout horror films, for you, what was sort of the first horror film you remember that left an impact on you, for uh, for better or worse? Oh, that's a good question. I... I want to say it was probably The Ring. I remember there was craze around that film growing up. I think I was like in fifth grade, sixth grade or something like that. And I remember teachers talking about it, friends who uh, somehow managed to find a copy and watch it when their parents went to sleep. <laughs> I, I have, I actually have still not seen that film to this day, but I've seen many of the scenes from that film as like partly when I was a kid, partly now. And that movie terrified me even though I hadn't seen it. So I still think about that movie every now and then. I should go back and watch it. I'm sure it does a lot of like early 2000 cliche cuts and it, I don't know, I've heard it still holds up uh, in some respect, but, uh, but, but yeah, I remember that movie scared me quite a bit when I was a kid. Absolutely, yeah, and I uh, I can definitely sort of relate to your experience of that movie in that I was only a few years probably younger than you when that came out and so I didn't see it but it was one of those things where you'd see the trailer on TV or in the couple of years that would follow like there would be those uh, those clip shows that were always playing on like sci-fi or uh, AMC I think at like around Halloween time that would always highlight like the hundred scariest films or something and so that was like my exposure to a lot of movies that I wouldn't see probably for another five or six years or even later down the line I mean there's still a lot that I haven't seen that are sort of more they're more known just because of like they're considered to be infamous or something to that extent without actually having seen them, which, if anything, I think makes it pretty terrifying in and of itself, considering you don't have to see the whole thing for it to uh, leave to have, leave the desired effect, I would think. Totally. And I, I really should see it now because I'm curious to see how well it holds up in many ways. I feel like that sort of genre of horror was parodied to death for a while there, too, with the girl with long hair over her face like there, there was. The Grudge as well, right? It had yeah. kind of similar vibes came out, I think a couple years after, or maybe maybe the same year. 
I don't know, but um, th- I feel like that genre of horror had a uh, had a pretty strong following, I guess, in the early 2000s. Yeah, definitely. And you can see sort of that impact in a lot of modern horror still, but maybe you've seen sort of uh, sort of evolutions on the things that maybe back in that time period were sort of viewed as uh, as campy or whatnot. But definitely a film that uh, I recommend going to check out. Uh, I don't know, can't speak so much for the sequels, but it's definitely a film that I think holds up and uh, it's it's clear why it made such an impact even all those years ago, if you weren't able to see it fully, it kind of just, it did what it needed to do in a way that was very memorable and uh, withstood the test of time in a lot of ways. Yeah, that um, that's good to hear. I, I watched Saw recently for the first time, which I loved, uh, which came around the same time, but the editing in that movie is <laughs> so 2000. It's just yeah. super quick, weird, like slow down the frame rate for some reason like it just a bunch of weird cuts and editorial decisions there still enjoyed the movie but man i felt like i had taken a trip down memory lane watching that film yeah saw is one of those movies that i think it's even more remarkable when i go back and watch it just because of the fact that i think they filmed it over the course of like a week and they made it for basically no money and you know those sort of things definitely stand out but at the same time like it kind of and to much of what you were saying about uh, the ring of it being very much this byproduct of that era, I find that Saw is the same way in that it totally. draws from a lot of those, whether they be tropes or just maybe odd stylistic uh, choices from that period. Yeah, but the ugly as a green whole, look. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that whole movie, like I did a series review of that this year because I had only seen, I think, two or three of them. And so mm-hmm. I kind of like marathoned it with one of my buddies. And we best describe those as kind of like they have this uh, tetanus aesthetic to them and that everything is just like very green and grungy and gross. You feel like if you were to rub against any wall in any of those movies, you just get tetanus because it's so disgusting and grimy, which it looks cheap. But I guess when you're dealing with a movie that uh, that isn't afraid to kind of like roll around in the mud, as it were, uh, it definitely fits for that type of movie. So not to get too off track then, but how would you rate or rank the Saw movies? Maybe just your top three, because I know there's, what, nine now or something? Yeah, I think there's nine. Um, So, let's see. I think, I guess my favorite one is probably the original still, because that ending holds up so well. And Mm -hmm. it's still, all these years later, like now I've probably seen it five or six times, but it's one of those endings that I think still, you can't see it coming at that time. And then it kind of informs the fact that the further you move into those movies, there is this like unexpected nature to them, even if you do know that, okay, this is going to play by a certain formula. You still kind of are expecting a curveball of some sort, but I think it set a good precedent for, okay, we're gonna get, for the period at least, it was like, it's gonna get grungy, it's gonna get nasty in a way you haven't seen, but then they're also willing to sort of take these sharp left turn, right turns, and not really care if the audience is going to, if that's going to upset the audience or not, which is something I kind of appreciate in filmmakers um, that are, they're like, well, this is a story I want to tell. And if people get upset by it, even if they feel something for this character, I don't really care. But uh, so that's I'd say censored probably too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In a big way. Right. Um, I would say probably the first one is my favorite. Um, I can't remember if it's, I think it's soft five or Saw 6. This is the thing. When you watch all those movies, they begin to blur together yeah. in a way. Um, I think Saw 6 is probably my second favorite because that one moves away from this sort of like subplot where like there's a cop that's a serial killer now or something, which kind of like 
doesn't really work for me. It kind of is even mm -hmm. more ridiculous than you were, I was expecting uh, from those movies. But Saw 6 takes an interesting angle where there's this theme of like, okay, they're going to target people that are at this insurance company because they're basically defrauding other people or they're making it that way. People can't get coverage basically by checking off a box that says, oh, this is a pre-existing condition. We don't have to cover you, which I thought was an interesting angle. And it also reeled back. And while it is still kind of cheesy for the period, it reels back a lot of the like campy subplots, which was never really my main interest in those movies. Um, mm -hmm. I was more interested in them seeing how, of course, like the intricacies of the traps and the sort of the brutalness of those, but at the same time, incorporating more of a thematic element that kind of ties everything together rather than just a series of like random gory kills, which those are always going to be a part of the movies. But I think that series works best when there's something at least connecting them. Um, and that would probably be why I like um, Saw 3, excuse me, Saw 3 uh, as my like top three film for that series. Because again, okay. it's all tied together with like, there's a cop that's investigating. Everybody that's a victim is tied to the investigation. It's not just a series of like random people that are scumbags. They're scumbags that are connected to this character, which gives it a little more, uh, a little more narrative sort of direction instead of just feeling aimless, which when you get towards the end of the series, it's definitely going in that direction where it's more aimless. It's more about how gory can we make it? How many deaths can we have? Which, you know, periodically there's uh, some entertainment there, but Overall, those movies kind of just feel more aimless in their not having a direction. And you're just kind of like, okay, I see what they're doing here, but this is the one lane that they have. Whereas the earlier yeah. portion of the series, it definitely feels a little more constructed with a clear vision in mind, which, you know, for those movies where they kind of were all dubbed as being uh, like torture porn and whatnot, that's kind of like the beginning of that sort of subgenre. The original at least three films and with the exception of six later on it just feels less gratuitous for the sake of being it even though they do get pretty uh pretty gruesome pretty violent obviously of course but i think that the earlier films specifically like the ones i mentioned uh definitely definitely have a little more drive to them and don't feel as uh as aimless yeah i mean i i've only seen one through three um i i because as i said i i watched Saw for the first time a couple months ago, then went on to two and three. And I thought two was one of the best horror sequels I've seen in a long time. I really liked two. Three, I enjoyed parts of it, but I was kind of starting to, it was kind of starting to lose me. Mm. And I think the way three ended, because then it started to get really ridiculous in my opinion with like all the different notes he was leaving and the recorders. <laughs> and yeah. I was like, all right, I'm, I'm losing interest a little bit. I kind of stopped watching, but I've heard really good things about six. So I do want to yeah. push through and uh, not watch Spiral apparently because I've heard it's bad. <laughs> yeah, that was a movie that uh, without, you know, delving too much into it, it was such a great opportunity for them to, again, tie it back to some sort of a theme, right? Which when you think about sort of how in the weeds that series gets for, uh, I mean, like, let's see, four, five, seven, eight, whatever. Uh, those kind of like get in the weeds and they lose that. But Spiral felt, again, like a return to what made Six such a standout, considering the previous two films were pretty forgettable, in uh, mm -hmm. my opinion. But they had that whole angle of like police corruption and how they could tie that into. But then, you know, Chris Rock, I mean, he's a great writer comedian and he's shown recently with something like fargo like he has acting chops and even before that he's uh, proven himself as an actor but 
When you have such a comedic powerhouse in a film like that, and he's making jokes every five minutes or so, it kind of just undercuts everything that they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And they try to, it, it's a very uh, tonally confusing. It kind of just feels more like a horror comedy, whereas that's never been what the series is about. So it's like, yeah, I was anticipating that there would be more humor in the movie, but when you pair his humor sensibilities and it comes up so frequently, and then you have like Samuel Jackson, who of course like has to get in a motherfucker line there. And it's like yeah. the entire theater erupts in laughter. It's just like, okay, it's kind of not really quite sure what it wants to be, um, which made it pretty disappointing considering it seemed like a good jump off point. And of course, you know, you had uh, James Wan and Lee Winnell who are the original directors of the original film and producer, writer, co-creator, uh, coming back and being involved again, which was nice to see because I think they had stepped back after uh, one or two of the entries towards the end of the series that really kind of fell off. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's one of those things I'm always open to directors returning to a series, even if like the previous entries had not been to my liking or hadn't done quite what I wish they had done. But it's one of those things where it's like, okay, you have clear-cut examples of in the past what's worked let's try to draw a little bit more from that instead of the elements later on in the series that kind of pushed it in a direction that wasn't quite what i was looking for yeah i, I can see that i i part of me like i feel like if i made it through all the saw movies which i plan to do at some point i probably will watch spiral too mm. um i just remember being pretty excited for it because of what you're saying it seemed like an interesting new direction and i didn't see it but everyone i know who saw it was just really bummed and the, the two people in particular um, who, who I know saw it are huge fans of that series and they mm. were pretty let down. So that was kind of a sign for me. It was like, I don't love this series as much as you guys, but I enjoy it. Uh, so if you're pretty sour on this, I probably won't like it at all. <laughs> it's just a bummer because, you know, in this era where I've been watching horror movies for such a long time that now I want to see maybe classic franchises or just franchises that have cropped up over the last 15 or so years and there isn't as much studio confidence there just because of the way horror movies are right now and whatnot not to say that there isn't a lot of fandom but there's a lot of i mean i look at something like friday the 13th which is like been in legal hell for since the last one that came out like 2009 it's one of those things where i'm just happy when we get either a new sequel or a reboot or a remake what have you uh, like they're going to release a new texas chainsaw massacre next year in february mm -hmm. through uh netflix and the synopsis came out recently and people weren't too thrilled about it because it sounds a little a little far out in terms of like what people expect from that. It's being a direct sequel to Toby Hooper's original. And it's not, it doesn't sound like the film a lot of people were expecting, but I mean, personally, I'm just excited for it because we're getting another Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie. And I would rather watch something that takes a big swing and it might not work. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's just like, okay, at the end of the day, I'm getting a new one of these movies and it's going to be 90 minutes. I'm either going to dig the direction or not. But at the end of the day, like getting more eyes on whether it be established franchises or franchises that are kind of like getting their name back out there again. It's one of those things that's exciting because it's putting eyes on something that people haven't thought about or at least maybe general audiences. Right. Or <laughs> can be such a, uh, a niche fandom at times. It's like, well, yeah, of course, fans are excited about it, but it's more about like getting a general audience there otherwise. Who knows if the studio is going to be like, well, yeah, we're definitely going to fund another one of those. But that always seems to be up in the air. Yeah. And at the very least, hopefully it means they'll do reissues of uh, a lot of those films. that Because didn't they do those Friday the 13th? Or not Friday the 13th. Uh, Halloween recently yes. because of the they just did that big reissue, which yep. I didn't get. But 
I wanted to. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was one of those I was dying to uh, see a discount, a substantial discount on for the uh, Black Friday stuff. But yeah, I mean, I'm still waiting on. Uh, I would, I would hope we get a Texas Chainsaw Massacre Criterion release at some point because I think there's an anniversary coming up. But yeah, it's one of those things where you get more people interested on something, and it's like, hey, we get to see that crispy reissue because I think even. I mean, not that uh, the thing ever loses popularity, but it's one of those where we just got another 4K uh, restoration, I think. And it's one of those where it's just like, yeah, that's that's perfect. (laughs) Yeah. But we're here to talk about Censor, a film that I've now seen three times. And I think I enjoy it more every time I watch it just because I, you know, going from a trailer to what the actual film is. You know, I kind of have a, uh, a love-hate relationship with trailers a lot of time, because I understand there's yep. obviously, whether it be movies or games, it's such a finite amount of time to get your message across to the potential audience. And that doesn't always end up being the best representation of the final film, but that's part of what I love about rewatching movies is that you kind of get past that initial expectation and then you get to revisit it with a better understanding. And that's really when you start to, and of course, getting to talk to uh, people that have seen it or people that are fans of it and whatnot, and getting to sort of further my own understanding, but potentially their understanding of it. But for you, what is uh, the first sort of element of sensor that comes to mind of why you enjoyed it so much? I mean, I kind of touched on this initially, but I think it, like the thing that stood out for me initially was just it had such a great first impression. Um, I think with those early scenes showing those video nasties and it feels like there's not a wasted line of dialogue in this film like every line seems so purposeful and then i think when you match that with just the visuals uh, i I know that um they shot this on film too Mm -hmm. which is surprising especially for a small indie film to do something like that uh and i think all that feeds into it right the fact that it's about video nasties that were originally shot on film this is shot on film it's got very stylistic lighting it doesn't look like it, it it doesn't look like most horror movies, I guess you can say. At least most horror movies that I've seen, the the the, the big box office um, horror ones that you typically see. But but I think a lot of it was just that first impression that really stood out. And then of course when it gets into the psychological aspect, I, I love horror films like that. You know. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it, it the movie does such a great job of slowly introducing that style that super stylized nature that's at the very end of it right and i think that it does a good job like you said of introducing that uh vhs sort of grainy staticky uh presentation you get that restricted um aspect ratio and whatnot at the very beginning of it but then the movie kind of carries itself almost like a not a period piece but it just feels like it is putting you in this era that is societally there's this like hysteria so you kind of are feeling that there's something growing but it's presented very kind of just straight like this is a day in the life of what this character's world is like what their day is like and it doesn't sort of come on too strong from the outset which i think is perfect because the film does such a great job of really taking us on the descent that this character is sort of like into her own trauma and understanding of that and how that begins to not only shape the way that she views the world, but the way in which we, the audience, begin to sort of interpret it. Um, were you super familiar with like the video nasties era before you saw this? Because I definitely was not. No, not at all. I mean, the most experience I had was I watched some, like after I'd seen the film, then I read up on some of them. And I know a lot of the the films that they used were actually actually real films. Mm-hmm. Um, I think even some of the ones that were integral to the story too were real. 
Hmm. Um, I think. I, I, I may not be so sure on that, but I know a lot of the shots that they showed from Video Nasties were actual ones back in the day, which I thought was a really cool touch, which once again just adds to that setting so much more. Because, you know, you can't, you can't really recreate that anymore. Like, I, I can't... I can't think of a way anyone could possibly do that just because technology is so far beyond how those were shot like those, those weird effects it was a time where like blood and gore was way more of a taboo than it is now too so it's like it, it, there's there's an authenticity to the film uh to, to both the film because it is shot on film and because it uses those original films that you just can't find in in a lot of movies you know absolutely yeah i feel that Whenever films try to, especially like tap into or be a homage to the 80s, a lot of the time when they try to do what Sensor does so well, it just comes off feeling a little contrived or you're just like, you can clearly pick it out from a lineup. Whereas <clears throat> Ghostbusters Afterlife. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, that was my fear with that one. I, uh, I haven't gotten around <laughs> to seeing that one yet, but that sounds, uh, that sounds about right with what I've heard from some other people. But it does definitely feel that sensor is not only coming from a place where they understand this era so well, but it's presented in a way that just feels very authentic to it, right down to like little details, like when Enid goes to the uh, Gerald's video store, right? And the guy is basically after she has to convince him that like she's not a cop, she's not looking to bust his shop for uh, providing video nasty rentals and whatnot. It's he little comments, he's like, oh, it's a bit of a ropey, uh, copy there's like it's grainy and fuzzy a little bit just like little details and like someone that. taped over the end too. yeah somebody taped over the ending and it's little details like that that granted i was not from i was not alive during that era and i'm not from the uk but i have a co-host for one of my other uh podcasts neil bolt who's the video game editor over at uh bladedisgusting.com who grew up in that era and he is very familiar with this era and it's very near and dear to his heart and those are a lot of the types of things that he would tell me about growing up in that era before this we even talked about this movie together where he's like yeah you know uh there was a vhs tape that got passed around between friends and whatnot and it was grainy and it was shitty because we'd watched it so many times and then inevitably somebody's parent would get a hold of it by accident and tape over it with something and it was it was just it was a very organic moment and small bit in the film itself but it just carries so much weight because at least you know, anecdotally, I have that uh, background information on it, but as a whole, like the film just, it feels like it is being a proper homage rather than trying to evoke 80s horror because 80s horror is sort of like been having this resurgence over the last 10 years where everybody's in love with 80s horror now and everybody wants to go back to like, quote unquote, the good old days of horror and all these different things. But I just thought that Prano Bailey Bond and her uh, co-writer, Anthony Fletcher, did a really great job of just putting us into that world and you know giving us a lot of the um the behind the scenes sort of of like what it was like to be a film censor uh that was an element that i on paper i was like well how interesting could this really be but they really make it integral not only to the character because it's like her job but it just gives you this background look at like the bureaucracy behind it but also a lot of the hypocrisy which was a really interesting angle to the film that I was not expecting that I think furthermore just like fleshes out the this era that we have seen repeats in our history of right where you get this kind of social hysteria and you know you're no stranger to video games you know I mean I remember 
uh, when GTA 3 was released for the first time, right? It was, that was all we heard about, and I was too young to play it, but it was the first time I remember hearing about video games in the news. Like, if you play this game, mm-hmm. you're gonna you're gonna go on a rampage, or you're gonna start beating up people, or something. And it it's kind of just disturbing to see a film that takes us back to the 80s, and yet that was, those kinds of things were still happening. And then yeah, further in life, we still see these sort of like social hysteria moments pop up around media. I did like, too, how the movie didn't necessarily take sides on that aspect of it, too. At least from my understanding, it didn't feel that way. Because, uh, c- I mean, obviously the media was blaming that, that killer who you never actually see. They just talk about this killer this killer who didn't remember that he killed people. And, and people are blaming uh, uh, that murder on a movie that Enid edited or censored. Um, and, and like throughout it, I, I kind of kept waiting for it to be like, see, this is like you, you, yeah. movies, movies don't do this. Media doesn't cause people to kill people. And it kind of doesn't really take a side. There is that one line where it's like, oh yeah, it turns out he didn't even watch it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which, which is, is a good line in itself. But then you look at the overall like plot of the movie and the, the themes that I pulled from it, it was like. Uh, but I mean, kind of the movies kind of fucked her up too a bit. Like, uh, I, I don't know. I, I like that it wasn't trying to like push this message, even though I, I agree. I don't think media causes people to commit violent acts or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that the movie does a good job of straddling that line by, you know, the whole theme behind the movie in a lot of ways is just like the hypocrisy of the fact that you're making these statements that like if you watch these movies, you're going to go on a rampage. But then you have an entire department from the gov, like a government sanctioned department that these people spend all day watching these things. But for whatever reason, the government doesn't have a concern about them. Um, and I thought that that was smart because it never comes off as preachy. And, you know, I don't know, sometimes when directors try to get a little too finger wagging at the audience or whatnot, or certain uh, bodies of power, it comes off as just being like, either too on the nose or it just doesn't do it loses track of like the Mm -hmm. actual plot of the film right it kind of feels like it's more just about this message rather than the actual experience of the character and how this is actually impacting their life and that was something that i thought was phenomenally done in terms of juggling that and that enid's never allowed to really become the backdrop to what's happening um and i think that that's their exploration of the blending of sort of just psychological horror and uh, inserting the personal trauma, right? It's exploring very real-world trauma in a way that is exemplified or maybe it's exaggerated through the violent media, but it's just done in a way that it never feels ridiculous or too over the top. Do you know what I mean? I do, yeah. I I mean, even even down to like some of the... uh, I guess anxiety that she goes through. There's mm. one scene where she's in a car and she's like poking her thumbs like this, mm. and, and that's something that that people too like. That's a coping mechanism for some people, and it's something yeah. I've never seen in a movie, but I've seen people do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that even that little detail, like, just kind of brought her character to life first of all, and then just I I, I don't know. I was just super fascinated by that little that little touch that kind of refocused the film on her as opposed Mm -hmm. to all these other things that are happening that more just felt like not set dressing but just background for the time period right yeah that was something that i was really appreciative of in the way that her characters portrayed in that from time to time uh horror has a tendency to 
especially when it comes to like female protagonists, making them be this very hysterical, they, their, their further descent into whatever, unpacking their trauma or the situation that they're in that's really like bringing about this psychosis to a certain uh, extent or like mental health crisis, it kind of has a tendency just to like portray them as being very hysterical, constantly mm -hmm. over the top, or the uh, the trope of just like all of a sudden they're just dis uh, turning to alcohol at every instance and things like that, which is definitely how a coping mechanism for people, not to say that that's not a thing, but it just has become sort of a trope in horror where it's like, okay, now we have to get all, we have to get three or four scenes of them getting tanked. And then of course that's going to exacerbate what they're dealing with. Whereas in this, yeah. it's taking a very real world rooted traumatic event, which is the mystery of her young sister going missing, which, you know, there's, that's not an uncommon thing in our society or in the world, right? People have dealt with situations like that before, but it never really feels like it is done for, or it's presented in a way that almost like try, kind of turns her into a caricature. And th the point that you mentioned in terms of like that little coping mechanism or the frequently returning to like picking at her cuticles, right? It's, she has that meeting with her parents where her parents are commenting on the fact that like she's picking at her fingernails and picking mm -hmm. at the skin around her fingers and things like that, which is a very subtle thing, but it feels, it just, I don't know, for me, it just doesn't feel like it is this big overt moment that something's wrong. It's a little yeah. thing that, and I think that when you sort of juxtapose how people view her throughout the film, like her parents notice something is wrong before her coworkers do. And it's from that little thing, right? Which kind of shows that not people that are dealing in a crisis, whether it be mental health or otherwise, it, it's not always this big overt thing that can immediately be recognizable. And I think that's something that this film does really well. Furthermore, in terms of like the pacing and how the film goes from the more sort of just grounded, putting you in this world to her descent into really her trauma, sort of overcoming her mindset and her way of life. Yeah, and the, the, the sound design, I think, is something too that really stood out because it bolsters a lot of that. Um, uh, one scene in particular, uh, after the after she accidentally kills the producer and his, I don't know, his head sticks through the trophy <laughs> and it's like wonderfully gory and, and uh, bloody. Uh, but when she goes to the office, and I think that's probably when her coworkers first realize that something's kind of off, at least the first major instance, uh, the sound design there is really interesting. Like th there's this weird like echoing like, like it sounds like a person who's just doing this over and over again that has been reverbed to hell and like it, it, it's super fascinating just listening to the progression of sound um, that kind of takes place and I know that's not not so much a trope but kind of par for the course for a film like this but I think they do it pretty smartly and that it's not like super overt and that it's not like it's, it's not like cacophony in your ear and like <laughs> right. it, it's just kind of a nice like subtle progression that mm. does have its moment during the uh, during the climax there's a lot of restraint in the way that I think everything is handled in this movie in a way that's pretty surprising for a debut right I mean it was mm -hmm. um, I believe there was a short film that this was eventually you know adapted from into a, 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 a full-length feature but I think that it just shows that they're able to introduce these things that might be fairly standard tools within like the horror filmmaking toolbox but there is that restraint right and that that sound design especially like what you mentioned 
you notice you almost don't notice it initially right it kind of is one of those that it takes you a few seconds for it to register and then you can't not hear it throughout the rest of the film and that's an element that i love because they don't introduce a new element uh, stylistically whether it be the sound design or like the lighting which we'll get into but they just use it so smartly and it doesn't steal the scene again it comes back to like the way that they portray her mindset further like crumbling basically or deteriorating the longer the film goes on and that it begins very subtly but then it becomes to the point that you're like yeah i've actually this has been happening for a while it's just now kind of um reaching the the crescendo right towards the end of the movie or like three-fourths of the way through which you know sometimes horror movies have a tendency to sort of get ahead of themselves right and that they introduce these elements and they are so overbearing and they're so in your face you can't miss them early on that by the time you get to the conclusion of the film you're like okay this is kind of like a whiff or something like that or it doesn't mm -hmm. feel nearly as impactful or as meaningful as it could be it kind of feels like yeah of course this is the natural progression i've assumed this is where the direction we were headed in whereas with this film even on a rewatch i think it's just it is so smartly pace throughout the entire thing and kind of like to your point you said um there isn't like a line of dialogue wasted and that was something that i thought was really just prevalent in my rewatches in that every single instance of an interaction that she has with somebody whether it be at work or her parents or on the subway they all carry a meaning to them and it doesn't feel as if it's like done just to sort of create I don't know. They do such a great job of like creating the setting and establishing her and the trauma and how she's never been able to deal with the fact that her sister went missing. And she's always had it in the back of her mind, like, do my parents blame me for that? Um, and we find out that very clearly some of, they do bolster some sort of resentment towards her mm -hmm. for that. Even if they are embarrassed to admit it, it still comes out periodically throughout the film. But I just find that the director and writer's ability to establish her world and her mindset without having a lot of like extraneous dialogue between co-workers or anything like that is just there's not a lot of fat on the film which is very refreshing for a, a first-time director who otherwise might say well what if you know what if we like shoehorned in a romance to further establish who she is or have a bunch of kind of aimless dialogue with co-workers to establish that she's viewed as uh quote-unquote like miss perfect like they call mm -hmm. her right i think everything carries a certain amount of weight to it and it doesn't feel that it's it's just sort of extra everything just feels very deliberate which i appreciate yeah to speak on that too that's one thing i noticed was that there wasn't any like there there, there wasn't an x there wasn't any sort of romance at all and it just all that was just kind of gone and, and i i really appreciated that in a weird way just because it was like it just brought the focus closer in on her who was you know movies very much about her she's the most interesting character and the way they explore i think is really good and it was nice to see that they didn't need to like lean on a relationship in order to get a lot yeah. of that across or at least a relationship with like a significant other or something it was like relationship with coworkers, parents and like and that's sort of the uh the 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 driving force i guess in a sense not the driving force but the um can't think of the word but you know <laughs> <laughs> i mean it, it everything is done in service of establishing who she is in a way that by the time it's introduced you're like well of course this is her relationship with people or this is the extent of her relationship with people right she's the only time she has any real dialogue with anyone is about work and the mm -hmm. one time that 
that coworker like pulls her aside and offers to like, if she needs to talk to somebody, he tries to have this like personal moment, which ends with him like being like, oh, we should go get a drink sometime. And it's just like, she's so uncomfortable in that moment, almost more uncomfortable than when she's with her parents, I think, because it's interacting with an unfamiliar in a work setting that is not about work. Um, and yeah. that was one of those moments that I think really stood out. And again, it it feels in service of something. It's the punchline of that scene is not like, oh, she's gonna turn down this guy that wants to ask her on a date or something, but it just further reinforces, of course she doesn't want to get a drink because then it shows like what she's doing at home, which is doing a crossword puzzle. And she's obsessing about the fact that she still thinks that her sister's out there. And it's like somebody that is, I think that that is a great example of just further reinforcing that grief rules her life, even if we don't have to get a lot of scenes of her like crying into a bottle or having an outburst at her parents or something like that. It's just, it's almost mundane in a way, but it just mm -hmm. shows that like everything she does is driven by that grief, even if she doesn't have to give us a monologue about it, which if anything, I think is more depressing than if she kind of gave us this very tearful and moving monologue because it's kind of like, well, at least, I don't know if I haven't dealt with the situation like that, but I would imagine that that might be your initial reaction or outburst to it. But over the course of your entire, almost your entire adult life, like you're going to numb yourself to it while it's still, I would assume, informing maybe your outlook, your mannerisms, your habits, and you know, that not to overgeneralize, but I think that it's interesting for a film to tackle maybe the more mundane presentation of something like that, that we've seen so frequently in movies where of course, a majority of the time, it seems they lean into the hysterical side of things as if this just happened yesterday when this is a trauma that has ruled her life for, I don't know, 20 years or something to that effect. Yeah. Yeah. I also appreciated how it really didn't give you a lot of details about what happened to it. Right. wasn't like, like it, you kind of get it through that film that she was like asked to screen, but it, and there's like little flashbacks here and there, but I appreciated that it was just kind of yeah this happened uh happened a long time ago she's still dealing with it we didn't get like overly dramatic cuts back in time or like uh, or, or you know like those like flashing cuts and stuff it was just it's just very simple the characters acknowledged it and kind of used and ran with it um but speaking of like over the top what did you think of the uh scene with the producer because i know a lot of people i know who i recommended it to thought that scene was really dumb and i kind of get it but i also kind of like that scene <laughs> yeah um you know I, you're, you're speaking of the one when she goes to his apartment right when she goes to his apartment basically how it we, we talked i brought it up but basically how he dies right yeah so i thought that that was interesting because and i liked that scene because it not only further reinforces like this guy's clearly a scumbag which you get the moment you meet him right when he comes to the office he's just he's very overly flirtatious with her and just like basically a pig to her but also mm -hmm. I thought that it was interesting just in terms of like taking it one step back for a sec when it comes out that like this serial killer, they're saying that, or this man that killed uh, his wife and children and then referenced this film that Eden passed, which then puts all this public scrutiny on her, right? And that the media is blaming her. She's getting all these threatening phone calls and nasty phone calls. It was interesting that for the time period, but still like it seems that not a whole lot has changed. Um, we only see her getting a lot of hate uh, in terms of like getting all of this anger mm -hmm. and that this is her fault and they're call calling her house and calling her an evil bitch and all of these things. But she was one of two people that was involved in passing that film. She also has that male coworker who we never see getting any of the flack for this. Whereas you would think that if it's 
two halves, you would get the equal amount of hate and scrutiny, but we never see that. Also, this film producer that helped make the film that the public is so crazy about, outside of like one line that he has about like, people don't like my movies, and he comes to yeah, the door he, with the crowbar. The crowbar. Yeah, with the crowbar. <laughs> We never see him deal with any of that flack, which I thought was interesting, but then it further reinforces sort of just this like sleazy, uh, male-dominated part of the industry, I guess, right? This idea that he's like, he makes these like niche, by all accounts, kind of like shitty movies, but he carries the swagger like he's in Hollywood or something. He makes a point of saying like- He's got his oh, award. That. Yeah, he's got his <laughs> award. Like, oh, I've been to LA or something like that. And it was like- Okay, like still just so sleazy, and furthermore, like you find out that one of the movies that she pat that she has to screen of his was has like rape scene, and he like filmed that in his living room and all this stuff. So you're not there's no sympathy for this producer when he gets what he deserves, basically. Mm -hmm. Which then, of course, he like takes it a step too far, and that he basically begins to like assault her in his house, and then he falls and gets skewered through the back of the head. By you his know, own trophy. Yeah, by his own trophy. About, which which is, a nice touch. Yeah, it's very uh, poetic and whatnot. But, you know, outside of, like, seeing this... I, I preference all that by saying, like, it's rewarding to see, and it never is not, to see, like, a scumbag character and a predatory character, like, get theirs, right? Of course, in the most mm -hmm. gruesome way imaginable for that character. But that moment does, you know, kind of feel at odds with the, um, with the rest of the film in a lot of ways. But at the same time... I think it's interesting because it's it's one of the more, I guess, sort of open for interpretation moments, right? Because I think that the movie has a very clear cut ending, which was surprising considering like some of the more ambiguous moments throughout the film. But I think that's the moment where it sort of is asking the audience, do you think that this actually happened? Because I don't believe that they ever reference the fact that he's been killed throughout the yeah. rest of the movie. I don't believe so, at least. That's kind of what I was going to bring up, too, because, uh, I mean, first of all, like, my first thought was, like, it's super bloody, and I'm sure getting a trophy through the back of the neck through your mouth is going to be bloody, but, like, just the way the camera lingers on it almost made me feel like that's just kind of what Enid was saying, because she's been reviewing all of these films over and mm -hmm. over again, uh, and, and that was kind of her perspective um, for that. Uh, but then, kind of to your point, uh, when she shows up on set later, they're like, oh, the producer's not here. And that's just kind of hit. They're like, oh, he didn't show up. Like, I, I was kind of thinking like, like I imagined something really bad happened to him, but I didn't know if that's exactly what happened. And also when she leaves, she says, thank you for the drink. I'm, yeah. I'll be on my way now after he's like, <laughs> He's like choking on a puddle of his own blood. Right. <laughs> like, All right. She, that's kind of when you're like, oh, she's 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 not she's in a different headspace now. If that was her response to whatever just happened. Right. And I mean, what's so great about that is before she says that line, I think it's before she says that line. She does that little stretch that she does where she like, I don't know, she stretches her shoulders or something, which she does periodically throughout the film. Mm -hmm. So. It's kind of just like shows that she is doing, she's almost like a baseline after this horrific event has happened, which furthermore kind of reinforces like, maybe he fell and hit his head and maybe this is where her desensitization to the violence is now what the, I guess the government assumes is gonna to happen to people if you watch these movies, right? Where yeah. it's kind of just this, the ultimate personification of that fear, right? It's where, okay, yeah, of course you skewered this guy through the back of his head. Plus, to your point, the camera has that like, slight voyeuristic lingering on that really gory bloody moment which 
is the exact type of like money shot that you would see in a horror movie like that, right? Which is not out of line with like a lot of the the video nasty segments that we see early on in mm-hmm. the film. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's almost like like you're saying like that shot uh, lingering on that is paying homage to those mm-hmm. films and it fits her character, right? Like after she's seen it so much, she might be looking at it for a while, you know? It's it's uh, I, I, I really like the scene. I get why people might fall off from it because it does kind of come out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. It, it I, I, I think like the movie does a pretty good job of setting up what video nasties are without overtly doing it so i kind of expected something really bloody to happen um which you know there are more bloody things that happen towards the end but like that made sense to me i was like all right yeah and i think that it's a smart way to handle it too because again kind of like i was saying earlier it feels like the outside of that homage like a lot of the tip of the hat to the video nasty era is done so with the presentation that we talked about that doesn't feel very contrived, right? It, those kind of very, uh, for the era, like accurately representations of whether they be clips from actual uh, movies from that era or if they were made with the film in mind and whatnot, uh, or recreated rather. Um, I think that it's smart to keep a lot of those really gory moments to that uh, more restricted kind of like VHS grainy aspect ratio and whatnot, um, because otherwise, I don't know. Again, it comes back to just like the way in which the film really builds up to portraying her sort of further like unraveling mental state in that now the violence, you know, the violence has gone from the screen to her screen of life kind of thing, um, mm-hmm. which I think if we had gotten in a like an overabundance of moments like that, it doesn't really jive with the type of story that they're telling or if anything, it almost I guess it would kind of like be a detriment almost to the really what I found to be kind of respectful or the realistic portrayal of what she's dealing with again like not having any experience with that but at the same time it just it doesn't feel like they are exploring this trauma or this sort of just this grief in a way that feels maybe maybe exploitive is the wrong word but it doesn't feel like it is a careless sort of like construct of her character it doesn't feel like just a plot device it feels like no Mm -hmm. all of a sudden if she goes on this crazy murder spree, and like we said, we'll get into the end of it when it gets a little more bloody, but it feels like they're very selective in the acts of violence that she is involved in or that she views um, in her real- her perception of reality um, in a way that it just, it jives with sort of the direction that the movie's taking. Because then if there's this, vi- that would make the movie, to me at least, it would be very much a movie of two halves, right? You're exploring this, is it real or is it not? And then she goes on a murder rampage or something like that. Whereas it never really loses, you know, one of the characters says that she's lost the plot. The I was about to itself, bring that up. Yeah, the film <laughs> itself never it. really... <laughs> and I love that too, because again, it's one of the many lines in the movie that perhaps feels like a throwaway or you feel like, oh, it's just further to reinforce like that coworker's a dickhead. But then it really informs the direction that the movie takes in a way that's really smart without, you know, on a rewatch, you're like, yeah, it's pretty apparent. But in the moment itself, it doesn't necessarily it didn't beat me over the head with it, which, again, I'm always appreciative of a director that puts a little trust in their audience or maybe they add a little bit of depth to their film that you get a better appreciation for certain elements, especially like dialogue. Um, mm-hmm. The more that you rewatch it and have that further context and further meaning, but also just in the moment, 
it doesn't really when you hear that line the first time it doesn't kind of like make it like a standstill moment which is great because yeah. it doesn't crush the momentum in that because again it's barely 90 minutes long and it feels like it's just this brisk film that doesn't really get bogged down the on the second watch though that line definitely stood out i was like oh uh, I get it now. I get it. Like, like, and because I mean, the, the first time I saw it, like that was kind of my takeaway was that like, oh, she's just been censoring her own life for a very long time. Right. Uh, and and I imagine that's a lot. I don't think that's necessarily a, a smart take. I'm sure a lot of people got that from it too. But when you hear that line, especially, it's like, it's like, oh yeah, she has lost the plot because she's been editing out the like her life and she's been doing it through these video nasties that she's been censoring which which yeah like especially on the first time it you don't notice it second time i did notice it uh but but i think it still works i, I think like that line just kind of further uh capitalizes on what's what's happening in the film like it, it didn't bug me too much but i definitely was like oh oh <laughs> <laughs> well that's also again that's that restraint in that we don't have to have three or four instances of a line like that being introduced, right? Yeah. It kind of just, it's introduced, it does two things, it further reinforces, A, that character's a dickhead, but also, furthermore, it is on a rewatch, like, you're like, okay, now I see where this is going, and it further informs the viewer, like, the direction this is headed in, um, which I'm definitely appreciative. Also, I have to say, like, in mentioning that line, the beginning of the, I think that they do a really great job of Again, capturing the mundane nature of what it must be like to be a film censor and that you see how they become so desensitized to it. And, I mean, you know, I uh, recently have been very busy and I haven't watched as many horror movies as I have. But you, when you're frequently watching a lot of movies, you do find yourself becoming sort of like desensitized to some things that when you go to show a friend that doesn't necessarily watch the same types of horror movies you do, they're like, this is so fucked. And it's just like, uh, yeah, yeah, I get uh, uh, I have to like feign embarrassment almost and be like, oh yeah, it's pretty bad when you've probably seen something that's worse. But I liked how they capture that in that sort of like mundane office setting where they're talking about like around a board meeting, like very flippantly, they're like, oh, well, what's the consensus on like cannibal carnage or we're trying to salvage the intestines tug of war from this movie. Like, yeah, I'm trying to balance artistic vision and uh, the sense that, you know, it's yeah. It's just, it was very funny to me that they were able to capture the sort of like mundane nature of what an office, a conversation in an office would be like with the ludicrous nature of like what they're actually saying. And again, like you get a couple instances of that early on and then it moves on. But I think it does such a great job and again, further reinforcing the hypocrisy of the whole predicament of this social hysteria and the fact that it's like, well, you're worried about people watching all this at home, but what about the people that are watching this? And you know, again, that's pretty apparent, but it is handled in a way that it never feels comedic. Like it's funny, but it never allows the movie to ever really take this kind of like comedic tone or anything like that. Or maybe it never becomes so self-aware that it's like eye rolling because then yeah. it, then that would be kind of just a detriment to trying to make her this very sympathetic character who you want to see her get some type of resolution for this, even if that's not the most uh, realistic outcome for her, which we can kind of get into now. I mean, that was one of my next questions for you was, how did you feel just, I guess we should probably before that, we should talk about uh, Neve Alger's performance overall, right? We've talked about sort of the elements that have made her character stand out, but what about her performance for you really worked? 
Uh, kind of like what I was saying before, I think it's a lot of those ticks that she had, the, those kind of really subtle um, giveaways, I guess you could say, about her anxiety, like the stress she was dealing with, all that kind of stuff, like even just the way she looked at different characters. Like, I, I think she did a phenomenal job in basically saying a lot without saying a lot, if that yeah, makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, I think those are some of my favorite performances now. And, you know, I was a fan of her in um, uh, Raised by Wolves, which I thought was she was great in, but I was expecting her performance for that type of role, right? It's very much this sort of, like, warrior that is very protective and at the same time is not willing to take shit from anybody. And it was kind of jarring to see her go from that, which is a very sort of, like, fiery role that doesn't take any shit to a role where it, she's barely saying anything half the time and it's more just about the physicality of her performance and those ticks and whatnot mm -hmm. and that's one of those things i can go either way on in terms of like a really restrained performance um but i think the physicality is the key there because it's not again like what she's saying because we know that she is dealing with this and it really dictates her life and it's more about her showing us how it does that rather than again sort of the things that I've been saying in terms of like right. getting lots of just what you would expect from somebody that has not been able to grapple with the situation that has informed maybe the outcome of their life or just their their the way that they deal with interpersonal relationships or you know the the reality that her relationship with her parents is never going to be what it perhaps should have been which I think is probably one of the most upsetting parts of the movie honestly you know you talk about mm -hmm. of course her dealing with the reality that she'll never know what happened to her sister but it's almost more depressing just seeing how she has this awkwardness with her parents and it's not from an event that it was not that she had a massive fight with her parents about something that she did or they did right it's more about there's this event that it impacted both of their lives and they still have a relationship but you always get the sense that it's barely a fraction or it's just a mere sliver of what it could have been um and mm -hmm. i don't know i always find that it's upsetting when you see people that they there's nothing that they can say to repair that it's almost like, kind of like being in a relationship that you both know there's an, like if you were in a relationship with like a significant other and you were like well this is not have this is not going to go on for much longer but neither one will be the first one to say it whereas the relationship he, she has with her parents it's like is, there, is it even worth having the relationship because it's so uncomfortable? They're never going to get past this. And nobody will say anything about that other than the one outburst that the father has when she further kind of like spirals into this mania, almost like half conspiracy, right? This idea that, mm -hmm. oh, her sister's actually alive. It's this actress that's in the new Frederick North movie and all these things. And there's a line there where the father's like, we've heard all of this before, which yep. further reinforces that this is not maybe like censor outside of like where the film goes. This is not the first time that she's come to her parents and said, hey, she's alive and I have evidence or proof of that. And that kind of further reinforces just how bleak of a relationship that is in that the parents perhaps don't know how to help her every couple of months or years. They have to sort of deal with this again, this reality that she's not going to be able to get over it. She's not getting help. She's not going to get over it. And we kind of have to talk her off a ledge, as it were every couple of months or years and being like trying to wake her up to the reality of it and not seeing a real clear path or heard about deviations from that in an attempt to try to help her. It's just, I don't know, that's the uh, maybe the drama side of the film that I think is really, really well done. Yeah, I mean, I think one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when uh, 
she has lunch with her parents and her parents hand her a death, death certificate and then you kind of get the background you get it in a very natural way you're not mm. it's not like 10 years ago when i was a when i was a girl my sister disappeared uh and we don't know what happened to her or anything like that it was just like hey here's the death certificate we've got to make this official because we just need closure and like like you were saying she doesn't blow up necessarily she just she just doesn't know how to respond to it and you see that through her acting like you just see that side of her she doesn't know what to do and, and you know and it, i'm sure many people would say that like that scene is kind of really what kicks off one of the few things that kick off her sort of arc and like trying to prove her parents wrong in hopes to rebuild that relationship and to you know find her sister again yeah and i think that that's another handling of her uh, i guess for lack of a better phrase like her mental health crisis kind of in that it feels very gradual right it's again it's kind of like what we've been saying in that it starts very gradually but once it gets going and that is definitely the culminating event in terms of like really kickstarting that again the spiral again is it unfolds in a way that it doesn't feel like super sudden people at work don't notice right away people are not like doing wellness checks or whatnot on her right away it doesn't have to be this big blow up and mm -hmm. when it's happening for so long and it's so gradual that people are recognizing it almost by the time people start to take notice it's too late and i think yeah. that that's another element that handles that kind of deterioration really, really well. Because again, it's not making her out to be this caricature, that, that hysterical caricature that's like running around the office screaming right away, or she's not like, I don't know, running around town making a mockery out of herself or something like that in a hysteria. It's, she's kind of like spiraling in this conspiracy and she's running down this rabbit hole and her actions are becoming more and more brazen where, you know, it starts out fairly innocently, like she's going to that movie store, but the reality that she's like, oh, this video store and these movies have the answer. It She begins to like drink the Kool-Aid that her job is basically force feeding the country at that point, which if anything, again, it comes back to like she's losing the plot, right? It's that mm -hmm. type of thing where it's like anybody that's been doing that job long enough, if media really made you violent, these would be the most violent people in Britain probably. And they're yeah. of course not that. So I think that that overall is just a really smart handling of sensitive subject matter that does not always get the the res proper respect i guess or the the even hand that it deserves to the point that you see it becoming a trope in a lot of uh, a lot of not just horror films but films in general right these kind of like moments of crisis that it's like well then you get labeled as crazy or something like that and it's i don't know it's more melancholic in this film which i think makes it stand out for that reason yeah so so i, I have a question for you when during like the last when did you basically when did you notice when the aspect ratio started changing and like what was your thought like did you like that did you did you kind of see what was going to happen because of it like w what was your opinion on that because i i noticed it right away um just because i'm you know went to film school do video stuff and i'm like ah what's going on here yeah. <laughs> something's happening <laughs> so i the first time i was watching it i didn't realize what was happening for like the first i don't know three or four seconds or five seconds or something like that, which I think is really great because it introduces it at least to uh, to my non-film school eyes. It introduces it very gradually in a way that it doesn't feel, and I guess, I suppose you maybe could label it as a gimmick, but I wouldn't. Um, I would say that the way that they introduce it 
it's done in a way that feels gradual over a course of a few seconds. It's not mm -hmm. like a slam cut to that perspective. And it further just like puts you in her shoes and showing this new warped reality that she has. And I really loved that because again, they didn't feel the need to, I guess, outside of the opening of the film, they don't feel the need to do that throughout, right? They, which I think if that ending does not have nearly as much of an impact if they had used that stylistic aspect ratio kind of shifting throughout the film. Um, mm -hmm. I think that that would have been that would have been too on the nose in terms of like, hey, audience, wake up. This is going to be a moment that you have to question or something like that. Um, I really appreciated the use of that because, again, it feels true to the era that they're trying to evoke, the media from that era. And it's not used in an overbearing way that it's like, yeah, okay, this is the third or fourth time now you've done this. Like, this no longer has that impact, um, which I don't know. I really enjoyed that aspect. And, you know, maybe some people would label that as a gimmick, but I wouldn't because I found it to be very effective. Yeah, I mean, I would agree. I think even like on that rewatch, I noticed how they push into a TV with that woods shot. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it still has the, the 16 by 9 or whatever aspect ratio they shot in, probably 16 by 9 or maybe, uh, I don't know. Uh, they, they push it on the TV and then you kind of see the TV effects disappear, uh, but, but it's still wide. And then once it like switches from pushing into the TV to the actual scene, like mm -hmm. the match cut there, then it starts closing in. And right when that happened, I was like, oh, people are going to die because she is, she like, it, it, her life is becoming one of these films. Like yeah. it... it it is bound to happen, uh, but I don't think I don't even think that kind of prepared me for how that ending goes down and the people who do die because it is it's wild. <laughs> yeah, no, it's very wild, and I think that again, it's all about the build up to it, right? And again, it's that we have maybe two. I think there's only two deaths in the film, or something to that extent. But it's so their violence is very sparingly used, but the violence that happens is very in line with, again, coming back to that era. It all feels like it is li quite literally coming out of the, the TV or the movies and whatnot, mm -hmm. which is important because if you have kills in the movie or the presentation is not in line with that, you're like, well, again, this clearly just becomes now a film of two halves where it's like the era you're trying to evoke and then a lot of what maybe could be labeled as like, not slasher sensibilities, but just like more traditional horror film sensibilities, which then I would, I would think would then undo a lot of like the emphasis on this being so heavily like psychological horror, which I love. Um, and you know, not to say one is easier than the other, but I think that finding that balance is incredibly difficult. And this film does that in a really smart way and knowing the limitations that it has. And yet being so true to that era, like when she uh, takes off the director's head with the ax, that's so very clearly reminiscent of one of the kills from early in the film that while it is still in, you're never allowed to think that it's not in her reality, the special effects are clearly just taken straight from that era. And yep. they're purposefully, you know, purposefully so, not because of any kind of limitations, but purposefully so, um, which is just a really smart handling of something that could be fucked up so badly. <laughs> like, it would yeah. completely... If, if they had gone with just like a more, I don't know, a more modern approach, uh, for lack of a better way to describe that, it just would not have felt like it was as ingrained into the aesthetic that they're trying to use throughout this entire film, or maybe the fabric or the framework um, that they're trying to do, which, you know, throughout the film I thought was really good. And 
You know, I wanted to ask you also before we really break down the ending. I mean, how did you feel about, um, I think, like the lighting and things like that, which, you know, again, we talked about sound design earlier, but the lighting is something that I, again, I noticed it a little slowly the first time I watched it just because I was so ingrained in the moment. But on a rewatch, like the way in which they use light and it becomes more and more apparent to really play off of her mental state, I thought was phenomenally done. Yeah, I mean, th throughout the whole film, I thought the cinematography was great. Like the red and blue tones, mm. I, I thought worked super well. But uh, we, when you get closer to the end and when it does start to kind of shift uh, aspect ratio and the light gets more dramatic and more stylized, I really like that as well. Especially um, that scene where she meets the director with his name, Frederick North or whatever, yeah. something like that, mm -hmm. who you don't really see for those initial scenes it's just kind of shrouded in darkness and then he takes the camera and it's it's really sleazy and it's really uncomfortable how he's like holding it you don't see him he's shrouded in darkness meanwhile she's just wearing this dress that she doesn't want to wear that was just kind of forced on her yeah. with this spotlight down on her I, I i thought was i thought it was just a super well composed uh, uh like lighting scene it all kind of it all kind of worked in favor of the story. It wasn't just fancy because it wanted to look cool or wanted to look interesting. It all made sense. And um, I think like that scene in particular, I mean, there's many scenes in the film where you can kind of be like, oh, this is definitely a woman who wrote and directed this because, you know, you know, like depending, especially with the indie films, you can kind of tell um, based on the male, female gaze, or whatever. That's mm -hmm. a st stupid film school term. Uh, <laughs> That said, I think, though, it's a, like, I think it's apt for this conversation. But, but yeah, but like that scene where it's just like this this creepy director shrouded in darkness, holding a camera, pointing it at a woman bathed in light and a dress she didn't want to be a part of is like is so unsettling in mm. almost a way that the rest of the film didn't really have for me. Like that that made me super uncomfortable because it's like it's like yeah, all the all of these films were these video nasties were made by men and you can like a hundred percent tell and most films are and you can tell and you know there's there's a lot of theories in in papers about like the male gaze versus the female gaze but but i think like i i think the way it's handled in this film i think is super interesting and easy for people to grasp i guess in like a more modern sense um, because I feel like now when people talk about the female gaze, it's like a lot of like Agnes Varda, French New Wave stuff, which is not hard to watch. It's not easy to watch these days. It, mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I, I I really enjoyed that last scene just because of one of those last scenes or that scene I was describing because of how just uncomfortable it made me. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that I definitely, that definitely resonates with me in terms of just like very sleazy. And it's one of the things that you know, I've over the years I've tried to uh, expand my exposure to like different decades of not just horror but film in general, um, and I think that that's something that I struggle with with a lot of like 70s and maybe some really like indie 80 or I guess for the period they were viewed as indie like 80s horror films that are like very very sleazy, and that's always the element that I find difficult to deal with for the entire course of like a 90 minute film because it's so off putting to me that. Mm -hmm. You know, when you get these little slices of it in this movie, it works remarkably well because, again, it is a, sl a small slice of the film, but it does capture the essence of what is so uncomfortable about segments like that. And the way in which they carry that entire end chapter, right? She shows up, there's just a trailer in the middle of nowhere, there's nobody else around, this one girl shows up and, 
that works there and she's like she like seems like she's in a daze almost and you're kind of like well what is really going on here you mm-hmm. almost feel like she's getting set up for like a snuff film out in the middle of the woods with people she doesn't know and it's all very secretive and that in and of itself is just very uncomfortable and the way that they're able to again like we don't have to get multiple scenes throughout the entire film like that right outside of the interaction with um not not frederick north but the uh the producer the sleazy producer from earlier in the Mm -hmm. movie right you've got that instance which is very brief but then you have this instance which i think is stylistically it's not so much about like frederick north's actions it's more about the way it's presented whereas with the slimy director it's more about like okay he's very clearly like about to physically assault her and potentially like sexually assault her with his actions whereas with that end sequence it's more about the way it's presented which when we learn the ending of the film you're like okay it's more about like how a character basically becomes like an unreliable narrator because if you remove all the aesthetics of that i guess yeah he's still what you said was very true in terms of like the variables of that scene it's still this woman that's out in the woods in a dress that was forced on her and this guy that is like bathed in darkness is filming her but when you lose a lot of the sort of stylistic elements of that it becomes less threatening right when you lose a lot of that lighting and the sound design things we've been talking about and you get that camera perspective and whatnot it becomes Mm -hmm. i don't know it's just it's an interesting way to look back at the rest of the film and think well if we weren't seeing it through this lens would it be as threatening as it's being perceived to us or it's being shown to us Um, and that's an element that again you know i think this movie had i was surprised kind of how clear cut of an ending this movie had given that there's so much i guess ambiguity but also like it's up to the viewer to be like well how how unreliable of a narrator is she um throughout the movie but i was I was interested in that that direction that they took, even though I think it works very well. Um, yeah. Which I would think would make this probably a little bit easier of a sell to people that maybe don't step outside of a lot of maybe mainstream horror movies or less inclined to go after indie horror movies because they kind of maybe have had this uh, this rap for like being very ambiguous and giving very few answers. Yeah. Uh, so, so you said a couple times like how you thought the ending was clear cut. Like, what in particular did you find was did you find pretty clear cut? Cause I, there are parts of it that I definitely did. And there were other parts that I did not. My, so my interpretation of it is that, you know, she has this moment where she's in the woods for this film. She ends up killing the actor that she perceives to be this monster that is going to mm-hmm. kill her sister. Dressed and then, up as a werewolf. Yeah, and dressed yeah. up as a, I think, I think the movie's called like the beast man or something, which yeah. <laughs> is very hilarious to me because there's definitely a couple of movies from the eighties that, I could just like draw a line from to the influence for that. But yeah, yeah. So she has this moment and then she kills him. And then I I love too because the entire film is about how people that are involved in these movies or that are watching these movies are supposed to be these depraved maniacs. And then when everybody on set sees her kill this guy, what do they do? They all vomit instantly because it's, of course, it's so repulsive and disgusting and whatnot. Um, But then, of course, you have this moment where she chases after the actress and the actress reveals like, I have no idea who you are. Clearly you have manifested your sister onto me and Mm -hmm. you are just in her eyes, just a crazed killer. And so I interpret the ending of the movie as she is formulating this fantasy around that movie that she finds in uh, Gerald's video store. It's called. Uh, Yeah, I was going to say, I I don't remember the name, but she picks that up, that film up. And the second time I saw it, I was like, 
oh, that's like her little, that, that, that's how it ends. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I think it's called like. It's like home or something. Yeah. It's like the, anyways, it's basically, it's supposed to be this idyllic family standing out in the front yard, basically. And she models this fantasy of her saving her sister. She's driving home and she hears on the radio, like the announcers, talk, the broadcasters saying like, oh, well. The video nasties have been eliminated. The crime in Britain is down to zero percent. Uh, poverty has been this whole fantasy government propaganda, basically persona of this is what would happen if horror movies mm -hmm. were eliminated, basically. And I thought it was a clear cut ending because it shows her arriving at her parents' house. Her parents are in the front yard, and it's like very sort of seventies uh, cheesy esque, like oh, we're it's like rainbows and uh, lollipops yeah. and all this stuff. But then it gets intercut with the reality, which is like the fuzziness of an, a video nasty presentation of like her sister not smiling, but screaming and like screaming for help. And so I interpreted that as being clear cut in that she is basically so delusional now that this is her reality, that she has saved the day. But then we get brief snippets of the reality, reality. in which she has kidnapped this woman after killing people Covered on set. in blood just covered in blood and the Alice Lee is like screaming to her parents not uh, mom and dad I'm home but help me this woman has kidnapped me yeah yeah I, I mean I I guess that was kind of my impression when I watched it but I wasn't sure I was kind of doubting myself uh, and, and I had conversations with other people and a lot of people seemed confused so I was like maybe I didn't quite get it but uh, th that that's pretty much that's pretty much how I walked away from it um, I would say it definitely is reinforced on a rewatch because the first time I didn't have that. Yeah. Uh, I didn't have that, but I think you know I rewatched it uh, twice over the weekend. And I like rewatched that last scene a couple of times, and I think furthermore, like it just shows that her reality again. It's that blurring of the lines of reality and fantasy in a way mm -hmm. that I think I appreciate because if it didn't have that brief moment where it's like you get a, a snippet of what the reality is. I don't know. It just would not work as well for me because I think that the film itself is never throughout the entire course of the movie. It's kind of, I don't want to say wishy-washy, but it's up to interpretation. And I think in that final moment, I don't know. I, I kind of, you know, I kind of like nasty endings in horror movies. I think that's an element of horror that allows it to stand aside from other types of films. Uh, not to say that totally, other films, yeah. uh, not to say that only horror has unhappy endings, but I just find that reinforcing the worst case possible scenario is a risk that horror more often than not is willing to take that other genres maybe aren't and yeah, and can get away with it from like a more mainstream audience too i feel like people aren't as critical of horror movies that have an ending that maybe not didn't like but yeah an ending they didn't like yeah and i just think that it is further in line with i mean the more you th i think about it it's like well this is really the only ending the movie could have in a way because otherwise if it just ends with this fantasy that she's having i don't know it it feels too feels too kind of like dreamlike lackadaisical where it almost removes like the nightmare portion of it because then it's like well why why would she have such a disturbing presentation of everything else only to end on this upbeat high note when in reality yeah. i would assume that she would just further like you don't kind of have this descent into uh i guess madness essentially and then have just this upbeat tick at the very very mm -hmm. end of it whereas i think that they do such a great job too of establishing the relationship with the parents that in her state of mind like this is what her parents 
this is her parents' fantasy as well, right? This yeah, idea that one day... it's what they've always wanted. It's what they've always wanted, and it further reinforces that's never going to happen, which I think, again, it makes the movie just heartbreaking and melancholic in a way that it just really drives home the entire sort of ethos of that character in a way that, you know, I, I wish she had a happy ending, but in reality, it mm-hmm. was probably not going to happen for her. Um, but there was one line I wanted to come back to that I think is even more powerful than just that ending. And that's when um, Eden Enid kills the director and she kills the perceived beast. And then she basically is covered with blood and she runs up to her quote unquote sister. And basically the sister then says like, you're not my sister, you're some crazy woman and whatnot. And then she says, uh, Enid says, please, you have to be her, which, and she says that a couple of times before Alice Lee runs off. And that line is like, furthermore so heartbreaking because you just realize that that's all she wants that you she wants that to be her reality and i think that even if you didn't have that ending and you kind of have the the fantasy and then the reality i think if it just ended with her saying that and alice leave running off into the woods like that is the bleakest reality of what her outcome could be like right it's the most realistic Mm -hmm. i think in terms of the world itself is never presented in a way that is entirely dreamlike, right? It's more about her perception is kind of dreamlike, but the the variables of the world and the way it works are never super dreamlike. It, they're never sort of like bending the laws of physics or anything like that. It's more about just like the voyeurism, like the, the perspective shifting, being more like the VHS video nasties, grainy era uh, quality and whatnot. And I don't know, there's something about that line that you f- it just feels so natural that she would say that, whether or not she was having these kinds of visions. Like, if this was just her spending the entire film, like, going down this rabbit hole and this perceived conspiracy of, this is my sister, she's been kidnapped, and all these things, and you stripped away all of the uh, video nasty aesthetic from it, and there was not this uh, trying to decipher whether or not her reality was the believable or not, I just find that it's much more... Yeah, you know, it's just, it's it's much more grounded when it's more about just like showing a person and this is all they want in life. And it's not that unrealistic of a want, right? It's mm-hmm. that she wants to find her sister and at the end of the day, she realizes she's done all these things and she has to be her sister at the end of the day. Otherwise, she has to ma- admit what she has become or what she always had the potential to be. I mean, the director, Frederick North, has that line where he says he doesn't create the horrors, the horrors are already inside of us. Um, and of yeah. course, this is the uh, <laughs> the ultimate personification of that, but mm-hmm. it's a line that rings true to her predicament and sort of the trajectory her character takes in a way that, um, yeah, you know, I've said it before, it's, v- it's very disturbing and heartbreaking for a film that so heavily relies on that aesthetic and that sort of, you know, again, I, the dreamlike aesthetic while as the world itself is very grounded. Um, I think it's just, it's a great way to handle this type of character and the very, I'm sure, relatable uh, trauma that she's dealing with and whatnot. Never having an answer and never getting that answer and probably realizing long ago she would never get it and yet it still directly informs a lot of her life in a way that seems to be a detriment. Yeah, that was incredibly well put. I I mean, I was just going to say like, like, I mean, I mean, taken as a whole, this is an incredibly confident film for a first time. Uh, I think it's her first one, right? Like you're saying, yeah. she had a short film mm-hmm. that kind of led into this, but it, it is a it is a very confident film, and I think you can see that with 
with, I mean, you know, what we've been talking about, but everything kind of is in service of the story and kind of pushes you forward. It doesn't really hold your hand at mm. all, but it also gives you enough to be able to understand what's happening. It's just, I, I, I don't know. I feel like it's pretty rare to find a first-time director, like, come out of the gate swinging that hard. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, overall, like, I really, I really adored this film. Yeah, I think that that's the best way to put it in that it's just it's very confident, but it's not they don't get carried away in that confidence. Right. And I think that Mm -hmm. it's smart for a first time director to not necessarily hold the viewer's hand throughout the entire film and have them question things. I think that's important because otherwise, you know, it's just like if you, you know, the old uh, the old classic example of a horror film where it's like if you show too much of the monster early on, that third act is going to be a whimper rather than a roar. Yeah, um, and this is definitely the case with this film and the handling of it in that you're asking questions you're not really sure but you're never completely lost and I think that that's important and that's why that ending works well as it does and you know granted I'd seen it three times now and I think we're on the same page in terms of like the ending and what that means but again I think that it gives the viewer a little more than some amb- semi-ambiguous endings are and I think that that's smart for a first time director because I could see a first-time director getting maybe a little carried away in their vision with that ambiguity, and then you end up with one of those movies that, you know, people that enjoy genre films or enjoy horror films enjoy, but then you see, like, the general audience reaction is like, it doesn't make sense, which, well, it does make sense, but it's just... The the Rotten Tomatoes spread. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) The thing that it's like, people like me, when I look at that, I'm always just like, oh, okay, well, the audience hates it, but... Apparently there's some merit to this. Like I definitely have to check this out. But mm-hmm. it is one of those things where it. I, I agree with uh, your your uh, estimate of it in that it's like yeah they definitely uh, definitely took some subject matter that's been dealt with before in horror in a lot of different ways. But it's done in with in a stylistic way that you would think like this is her second or third film. But it's just representative of a creative that understands that period really well and it feels genuine, right? It doesn't feel like well. The, 80, the love for 80s horror is really hot right now. Let's make something that was in that period and have a lot of yeah. content that was evoking that. But it feels like a genuine understanding of it, which, you know, as somebody that only recently became, I, I mean, I was like you, I was familiar with some of the films that were classified in that period, but the event as a whole, I was not knowledgeable of or super knowledgeable of. Um, and I think they just do a really great job of not making that period, which I was not around for, feel foreign or feel like there's a big hurdle to place myself in that world mm-hmm. I, I i feel like i feel like very easily you know that scene where she's at home doing a crossword very easily it could have been like oh we're gonna put the thing on tv <laughs> and then she's gonna be like i don't know reading some 80s man like they could have just covered her apartment with mm-hmm. all that stuff and just and fed into that and it it, it doesn't it it feels like the time period without being like remember remember <laughs> this stuff it doesn't feel like just a uh, like a room scattered with landmines of like nostalgia bombs or uh, yeah. roast into glasses type moments. But I think also that's a real, I mean, now that you're saying that, that's a really important feature of her character, right? Is that you don't get the sense yeah. that she really has a love of horror or genre or anything she, like that. She's doing a crossword when she's at home, which I love that detail. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's one of, the, I mean, that's again, that's kind of like just the mundane approach to something that I think a lot of other directors maybe would try to go for kind of all the things we've been saying, right? You would have a lot of those hysterical moments or 
you would have somebody that's just a diehard horror fan because the person that's making it maybe is a diehard horror fan or something to that extent. Whereas that wouldn't make sense for this character really. Because otherwise, well, for starters, she would be a lot more vocal at work about if she was like a diehard horror fan, she would be, it would devolve into that finger wagging where it's like, well, see these movies, they don't cause violence or anything like that. Whereas the film kind of takes this very, uh, this very neutral stance for a long part of the, for the duration of it. But yeah, definitely a a surprisingly strong uh, directorial debut. This was a uh, this was a pleasure to have you on, and I appreciate you taking the time to chat about a movie that, you know, it's I'm, I'm glad currently it's on as of uh, publication of this. It'll have been on uh, Hulu now, which is great because it's definitely one of those movies that, unless you were maybe more inclined for seeking out indie horror films, it's one that I could see a lot of people like maybe struggling to drop that. What is it six six ninety nine for a premium VOD mm-hmm. rental? So it's one that. You know, I was, I mean, that was my exposure to it was I was glad to be able to check it out on Hulu. And I definitely recommend other people do if they're looking for, um, I don't know, labeling it as artistic horror. It always sounds so like preachy and condescending to a certain extent in terms of just like you have to watch it because it's artistic. But I think it it does a really great job of dabbling in psychological horror and dabbling of a respectable love of the genre or maybe a. Uh, a less than sort of just like nostalgia bomb uh, horror uh, and whatnot. Well, also being somewhat approachable too. I mean, I, I don't think you can go in and completely check out. Like, I think you have to give the film something in order to mm. get a lot of that back. Right. But I, I don't think you have to give it a whole lot to appreciate it, I would say. Yeah, definitely. I think that it's it is a very smart handling of both a period piece in the sense that it really evokes that era in a lot of ways, even for people that weren't around for it, but also it dabbles in a very aesthetically pleasing, I would say, or aesthetically pleasing nightmare uh, for Mm -hmm. the uh, psychological horror. But uh, Jake, before I let you go, um, did you want to promote any of your podcasts? Yeah, sure. Uh, I do a podcast with some friends called The Nuclear Fridge. We mostly talk about films as well, but it's kind of more of just whatever we're feeling at the time it always devolves into films though so (laughs) you know if you like this you might like uh nuclear fridge as well and then other than that i recently uh announced with some friends i announced a project called lads on tour uh i can't say a whole lot about that quite yet because we literally just announced it today um but or i mean whenever when we're recording this Mm -hmm. Um, but basically we're going to delve through backlogs of movies games uh and kind of have discussions around games that we probably missed like i've never played a castlevania game and that's something i should probably do so we're gonna play that and hopefully get to discussing about that and then the last thing is uh i am i'm on the tail end of finishing a documentary for noclip about um the forgotten city um so if that if if you're into gaming and you've played the forgotten city or heard of it that might be something to check out because uh it's quite the story it's 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 pretty fascinating that that's about it though that sounds like a lot more than <laughs> what it feels like well can uh what's your twitter side people can get updates on uh your new projects oh, uh it's jacob deck it's just j-a-c-o-b-d-e-k-k fantastic i think everybody should uh, go give jake a follow and definitely uh definitely check out his work and podcasts but thank you again for your time man this was a pleasure thank you so much for having me this is a lot of fun If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow the show on Instagram at Daily Horror Habit and on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod for episode updates. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you guys next time.